Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey everyone, on this week's episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, we're back for round two with Jamie McLennan. We talked the second half of his career, including his time with the St. Louis Blues, Calgary Flames, the Houston Arrows, Minnesota Wild, even his time in Russia, and a little bit about the Japanese experience. One of the most fun, informative, down-to-earth conversations we've had yet. He's just hilarious. Love sitting down and talking with him. It'd be great to go back and do 10 more of these, so Enjoy. Talked about the turning point of finally getting housing, and yeah, yeah. That. And Larry Plo telling you that too at the Blues. But your battle with bacterial meningitis had to be a big turning point for things. In some ways, I'm guessing you come back and win the Bill Masterton Award. Yeah. How did that affect your life and career? Uh, affected my life where I I started to. It's weird. I started to like loosen up a lot. If that makes sense, I was a very. I've always been quite an intense guy, and and. You know, I, I would say before the games, I didn't talk to guys. If I was starting, I was too too focused. I wanted the guys to know that I was ready for the game. So instead of being loosey-goosey, joking around, I'd be locked in. So there was two Jamies. There was Jamie who wasn't playing that night. I would keep the room loose and loud and enjoying myself. And if I was starting, I didn't say a word. And I, I kind of kept that going my whole career. But after getting sick and and in coming back and kind of learning to reteach myself to walk again. Like it, I knew how to walk. I just couldn't do it. All of that stuff. It, I, it was such a weird experience and I didn't miss any hockey. This is the, the scary part is that happened at the end of the season, May 6th. I got sick. I was in Lethbridge, Alberta visiting my friends and I thought I had food poisoning. I just was vomiting. I was really creaky. I was, my muscles were spasming. And I went to the hospital a couple of times and they were like, no, you're just sick. It's a bug. And then I went back when I threw up all night and I couldn't move. And the doctor's like, there's something wrong with you. And he said, you better call your parents because he said your heart can stop in the next hour. That's what he told me. And so I, I hadn't seen my parents in like nine months. They were living out in Vancouver at the time. And I was, uh, you know, I was gone for the season. And coming home at the end of the season. So I called my parents and I said, you should come to Lethbridge. Like things aren't looking good here. So they flew in and I went into intensive care for a week and they pumped me so full of fluids. My parents got there the next day and my mom was like, that's not our son. I remember her saying that and they didn't recognize me. I'd grown my hair out. I had such bad fevers that I would sweat and then my hair would wrap around the pillow. So I'd sit up and my hair was, I was like Kramer. And There's some uh, unintended comedy to these things. Oh, there is. Right? I look yeah. back on it now. I, yeah. I mean, I'm fine with, uh, but I, it, it was, I got a full recovery. The doctors were amazing. Um, it was weird because I was on my way out with the Islanders at the time and I'd been sent down. The Islanders were splitting a team in Worcester with the Blues. So the Worcester Ice Cats. So I got sent down and I was playing for Jimmy Roberts. And who, oh, what a legend. Like, Did he have the Velcro skates back oh then? Oh my God. And the hat and yeah. the gloves. And Jimmy is the best. Like I, I loved him to death. And, but I was Islander property, but it was blues that was kind of running it. And 
I, I, I got sick and it was the, the, the sad part about it for me in the hospital was that the blues organization who I was not with, Jimmy called, um, you know, the trainer from the blues called where nobody from the Islanders other than the assistant general manager, Darcy Regeer called like Milbury didn't call nobody. I'm, I'm, I'm dying in a hospital bed technically. And I never got a call from the Islanders. Not, not that you should. I think that's just more of a, I don't even know what the word would be. It was just disappointing. It's compassionate. Compassion. I mean, I like I knew I was, they were going to qualify me. I was going to be an unrestricted free agent, but I've been in your organization for five years. You might want to check to see if I'm going to cash out or not. I've been traded and had the GM of the team not call me. Yeah. And I've received calls from GMs I wasn't even playing for when it happened. It's a really odd feeling, you know, yeah. when you feel like you've really put your whole life into something, you know, and, and done your best. And but that's Bush. They just that's, cast you off, you know. It, that's that the business side of hockey. I think people who aren't privy to behind the curtain, it, it is barbaric. It is. There are. I think I think for the most part in hockey, 98 percent of people are great. Totally agree with you. But the two percent are pieces of shit. Yeah, and there are doesn't matter in what level there's and, and and you know I'm sure Microsoft and you know Apple and that they they have bad people in their organization. But there's only I think two percent bad people in all the NHL. But I'm sure we've crossed paths with them. You know, at some point. Oh yeah, I mean and, it's like anything in life. There's that yeah. big bell curve of everybody yeah. like that, and it's. But you're hoping that people have compassion and you hope that when they have to make a tough decision that yeah. they're not a coward and they run away or they pawn it off on somebody else. Like, yeah. I've been cut from teams. I've been sent down, not re-signed. But when GMs have said, hey, this is what's going on. Thank you. Yeah. Whatever, man. They made a decision. That's yeah. fine. I move on. Them. I have nothing against them at all. Yeah. You know, And that's... I appreciate that. And yeah. I think that's what everybody wants as a player. I, I, and that's why, you know, the people I'm still very close with in hockey, the Daryl Sutters and, I, they, you know, sometimes you didn't want to hear the truth because it, it hurts. But you respect the hell out of those people. And so I, I, you know, I, the Islanders didn't qualify me. My agent took a letter to the draft and shopped me around. And, and it was a letter from the doctor that said I was going to recover 100%. It was just going to take time for my body to get back. So July 1st came and I remember going to the gym that day. I'd lost 30 pounds, lost a lot of, I didn't have much muscle, but I'd lost, you know, some. I went to the gym that day and I tried to put uh, 45s on the rack. I could barely move it around. And uh, one of my best friends said to me, he goes, what if, what if nobody calls? And I remember coming out of the gym and I had a cell phone and my agent, I had missed like 10 calls and I called and he's like, I need to know. He goes, I've got multiple offers from you. They were all two ways. Like I wasn't, you know, I was going to have to work my way back, but he's like, St. Louis wants to sign you. Keenan wants you. Uh, Washington was in, but we looked at the depth chart. I would have been number four. Chicago wanted me. I would have been number five behind like Jimmy Wade. And yeah. like, it was weird because there, there was offers and there was good money in the minors. I think they were throwing around buck 50, buck 75 guaranteed. But offers are offers. Right. You had offers. I had offers. And especially and multiple. what you were coming from, that's and, all you could ask for. You know, some of them were one year, which my agent was looking for a two year to try and get some stability for me to work my way back. So we ended up, Keenan 
kind of bullied his way through. Keenan said, um, here's the offer. We'll sweeten it uh, a little bit more in the minors, guaranteed money and stuff. But you've got an hour. Call me back. Yes or no. So my agent's like, you should take the St. Louis offer. He goes, you played in their backyard. They know you. Jimmy Roberts is a huge fan. Um, the organization, the depth chart wasn't really deep at the time. And it just worked out. And then obviously I got to St. Louis. Rich Perrant was going to be the guy. But I, I played that whole year in the minors uh, under Greg Gilbert for the Worcester Ice Cats. And I recovered. And it did, I didn't play back-to-back games till Christmas because I would... I, now I have like a hydration problem now. Like I get so dehydrated, my muscles get creaky. Like I know you, I know my body a lot better now because of the meningitis. So that's, that's the long story, but I, I made it back and then made it to the NHL the next year, uh, the, the Rich Perron. And that's when I won the Masterton. Those three years that you spent the full time in St. Louis and really yeah. the couple before though with Worcester yeah. too. To me, I, I was a fan of the Blues yeah, at that yeah. time. And my dad's an off ice official. Yeah. I saw you in there all the time yeah that seemed like it was an incredible team was it really tight in the locker room the best like honestly the the most disappointing so i watched tampa win 62 games this past year and lose in the first round i don't know if you remember in 99 we dominated and won the president's President's trophy trophy. and we lost to san jose in seven that year remember it well remember bergy threw the puck in the man i can't forget that this is when i was still a fan yeah so it's i never blamed him in any way but i remember all this stuff really well well, So Prongs is still one of my best, best friends in the world. And I'll never forget that whole... Now, getting back, we had a very tight team. Like, think of the star power on that team. Hull, Terjean, Demetra, Pronger, McInnes, like... Scott Young. Here, Scotty Young. Yeah. Like, like just... We were built really well. We had, a, you know, Craig Conroy, Blair Action, Scott Peller in that line. That line was one of the best checking lines in hockey. Jamie Rivers. Rivers, obviously. <laughs> I'm sure you know Rivers well. Rivers was a beauty. So, you know, we, we had Nash or Tyson Nash, right. you know, we just, and Nash was like one of my very close friends. I think Twister was their chaser. So the toughness, like the way we were constructed. I, like there just was no weakness. I mean, you know, Fierzy was a god and a pretty good coach. Yes, Q. Like Joel Quenville's there. It, it just and and what makes me sad to look back at this because in '98 I th- kind of thought we had an off season. '99 it was like we were we should have won the cup that year. Now, you know, this is why you play the games, and I I was hoping that going into 2000. They would have brought the exact same band back. Sometimes you need to lose before you can win. Now, I ended up going in expansion to Minnesota and all that. So I, I got to, I got to watch Johnny come up and Brent Johnson ended up being a really good goalie. And you know, he kind of like took over. Um, but for me, I was sad because part of me still feels like that team had unfinished business with how good we were. And, you know, going back to the meningitis, the one thing I made the decision to live my life, and that's when I kind of like loosened my lifestyle up. Like I, I partied hard. We were, we were, I had a girlfriend who lived in New York. She was working for the Montel Williams show. So she was busy and like she was a producer for Montel Williams. What a show to work for. <laughs> I know. So funny. But and that's like a step above Springer. At yeah. Least, but yeah, exactly. So she was busy. And I was busy, but I was, we were young animals. Like we would, we had this routine, you know, you'd, and Jamal Mayers was there and yeah. be a Thursday night. 
we'd win at home because we, that's what we did. We'd win 4-2 every night. And then we wouldn't play till Saturday. So Thursday night, you go to Harry's afterwards and beers. When that, when that place closed down a couple of years ago, there yeah. were a lot of sad people. Well, you had to burn were, it. I think they should have burned it to the ground because the story's in that place. But you know what? Like, we'd go party. It would be... Uh, Mark McGuire was hitting uh, 70 that year. He lived right by me and Pronger. So Mac would call and, and meet us out. And and we would go to the east side, whether it was Pops or PTs or whatever. You know how many concerts I've seen in Pops when I was a kid? Oh, yeah. I used to get up with the band. Like yeah. the, the band is a, is a band, used to be a band called the Well Hungarians. So I know John, the lead singer, to the point where I would fly them up in the summer to my 70s party. And... I'd get up on stage and play the drums with them. And I only knew, you know, I could keep it together a bit. But that was our routine. The Friday, I'd sleep three hours, go to practice, practice, sleep all Friday afternoon, go to a movie that night. Saturday, we'd win and do it all again. Like it was, and we had a a tight group. Um, Everyone got along. There was just different layers of, of leadership uh, where Al McKinnis and Holly, like Holly's just a, I love Brett Hall. Like, I don't know. I'm sure you've met him and all that's that. That's the extent. I don't know Brett Hall. Oh, I've met him and that's that. Holly is one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. Like he is flat out, like he can, he can think something through. So I think he's got a, I, I wouldn't know, but I, I think he's got a very high IQ period. Like he does those New York Times crossword puzzles every morning and just that's, that's what keeps him busy. He's a very smart guy, but no filter. So like the funniest comments, like he would say stuff and he would be right. But sometimes you don't, again, you don't want to hear it. Like he would say to Terj, like Terj, get me the puck and I will score. And Terj would say, oh, somebody was on you. And he would say, I scored 86 in this league. You haven't. Get me the puck and I will score. And, you know, like it, it was, he wasn't lying. I heard when they got Turgeon yeah. that he walks in the room with his sticks. Yeah. And Holly walks over, picks up one of Turgeon's sticks, looks yeah. at the curve, flexes it, and he goes, This guy's gonna pass me the fucking puck with this fucking thing and threw it on the ground. Oh, he used to do, honest to God, he would we had a guy named Chris McAlpine on the team. We called him the mule. And he would walk to Mule Sticks. Pick him up, look at him, and just look at Mule and go, no wonder, and drop it and walk away. Like, <laughs> he was the funniest guy ever. Like, but he was great because there were nights where he would hold himself accountable, be like, guys, I'm shit tonight. Don't pass me the puck. Like, I'm brutal. I got to be better. Like, he just, and Prongs was like that, but in a different way. Prongs was, you know, get available, I'll get you the puck. Prongs was vicious. Like, he was. The complete, he was a leader, but he held himself to a standard that was so high, but then he held everyone else. He would yell at Pavel Dimitra, get available, I'll get you the puck. You can and, tell why he ended up winning the Stanley Cup and taking two yeah. other teams to the finals. Well, exactly. Like, there's a crazy stat that I would bug him. I think St. Louis made the playoffs 26 years in a row. The year that Prongs left, they didn't make the playoffs. He, he went to Edmonton, they hadn't made the playoffs, takes them to the finals. He leaves Edmonton. They don't make it back. He goes to Anaheim. They win the cup. He leaves. They miss the playoffs the next year. Goes to Philly. They go to the finals. And he leaves. They don't make the play. They don't make the playoffs the next year. And it's an unbelievable statistic. It's a crazy thing. And like, 
it's the pronger effect for sure. I remember him getting to Edmonton and Marty Reisner is a close friend on the team. He's like, prongs has changed the atmosphere here because he walked in and they were, you know, at that time, I think they had 27 owners and all these like weird things. He flat out was like, no, that's not happening. You guys aren't coming in after the room. Like he changed the culture there in a hurry. That's why I think teams need a captain. I still think in today's game, it doesn't matter to me what they want to say about millennials or young guys or anything. I still think you need one voice in the room. I I think having it delegated to three or four assistants muddies the water sometimes. And having that one clear voice at times where it's needed. It's fair. I I would agree with that. It just has to be the right guy. Exactly. It can't be the guy with the big contract that the owner says, this guy should have it because he's our franchise. It needs to be the right person. It's somebody that gets the ear of everyone when they speak. That's like, we had so many leaders in that dressing room in St. Louis. Like Grant Fear maybe spoke once or twice all year. But when he spoke, you'd listen. He stood up in Phoenix the one night. We were we were in game, would have been game five. And Phoenix was up 3-1 on us. I remember this. He brought the team back. It was against Nikolai Hobby Bullen. Yeah. And I think I and know it was the, the one nothing. And he got, yeah. he said before the game, guys, all I need is one. That's it. And like, we were all like, holy shit, like, like guys, just get me one. And I think Rivs may have saved a goal off the goal line that night. It got through Fierzy and he pulled it off. And I want to say Terz or, or Scott Young scored in overtime. And the best thing about it is Mark Bergevin, have you ever heard stories of Bergevin, how funny he is? Oh, I've heard about him in sumo outfits after yeah, games, that's get, getting in stick bags. Yeah, like he would do everything. They would bring, <laughs> yeah, they brought him in one time when in a stick bag because it, they, it was, <laughs> he was acting like he was dead and they opened him up and then he'd get out and dance. And because we used to do these dances afterwards and Bergevin was the best. I got a really funny Bergevin story. Um, talk about how tight our team was. We had a charity softball game and Al McKinnis shows up and, and Al's got this brand new, like, uh, brand new glove, like just a, you know, baseball glove. And Rudy post checks on the team and Rudy's a, Rudy Pot Pie was a beast. Oh, but, he was a relic, man. But oh. just a, you know, just a scary man, but yeah. the nicest man if he was on your team. So Al goes up to bat and, He's got this brand new glove. He leaves it on the bench and Burge takes it and he goes over to Rudy with the Sharpie and he goes, Hey, Rudy, a fan wants you to sign this really big. So Rudy starts signing this glove, this brand new glove that Al was bragging about right on the back of it says Rudy Postcheck, number 38. (laughs) And Burge goes and puts it back on the bench and Al finishes his at bat and comes over and, and you can hear it. Burge is sitting beside me. He's like, watch, watch this. And Al goes, Rudy, what the fuck? Like, he starts <laughs> losing his mind. And it was so funny because Rudy's like, what? I, I, I signed. He Burgey. goes, that's my glove. But Burge used to do stuff like that all the time. We had such a close team. And that's why I think I look back on it. I have a little bit of sadness because I, I, I feel like that's a team that we could have, should have, but we didn't. Was that kind of the time in your career? Were you able to embrace being a backup at that point, yeah. or did you always want more? I I wanted more the year before when Fierzy was there. I had I had a pretty good season with statistically, and there was a point where I think they were grooming me or thought there was a chance I could be a starter. 
And I failed. Like, I, I think there were, Fierzy got hurt. He may have tweaked his knee or something. And I got like 10 starts in a row. And I think I was like 5-4-1. and one. But I just, looking back, I think the light went on that I was, you know, I was a starter in junior or a starter in the minors. But I just don't know if I could have done it night in and night out at the NHL level at that time. Maybe I could. I could give you 10, 11 starts in a row. Could I give you 15? Could I Could I give you that high quality? I, 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 I look back and the answer is no. But, you know, I gave it a run. I, they gave me two opportunities to run with it and I failed in both times. Now, one of them, I kind of broke my finger. So I, I would never make excuses. I failed of being a starter, but... I, I I knew if I wasn't going to be a starter, why not be the best backup? Because that's the one thing with Fierzy, I could play 30 games and I give good minutes. And at that time, I was telling you off air, salaries were starting to escalate. Like, you know, you chip away, all of a sudden you're at a million bucks. So I, I think at one point I may have been known as one of the better backups in the league. Um, but I, I took pride in it. And then... As I got older, I knew that's what my bread and butter was. So I knew I'm like, I better bust my ass in practice. I better give you good minutes when I'm in the net, but I got to bring something else to the room. And that's kind of, I embraced that, I think, late 20s, early 30s. And I got another five, six years out of it. That's what I was going to ask you is how much do you think having that outgoing, fun personality, good in the room, made a difference not only in your career, but in the locker room as well? I think it. I think there's there's so much that there's so much parity in talent levels if you're a good goalie. You know, that you may some guys may have, you know, better butterfly or a little bit better reads or instincts and that, but unless you're super elite, I think there's a fine line between good goalies. So I said to myself, what else do you bring to the table? If I'm being compared to goalie I'm goalie X and he's goalie Y. What can I do that makes me valuable other than just stopping pucks for 15 games behind Luongo or Kiprasov or Turek or Fear? It was being, you know, leader off the ice as far as putting together movies and dinners and drinks and team parties. Stuff makes and a stuff. huge difference. I, I was, Somebody's got to do it. The boys used to call me Julie McCoy from the Love Boat. I would, I, <laughs> I was the the off ice, you know, social convener. And so you've done a few weddings in your day that yeah, obviously exactly. been responsible. Yeah. yeah. So I, but th- to me, it's just, it's, it's, it was about bringing something else to the table. I was vocal in the room. I would always try and prop guys up. Like I did. I think I had the analyst in me years ago because I was always doing pre-scouts for again, law pre-scouts for everyone. Like, Hey, watch this, watch that, you know? So it was, it, it, it was something that I identified and I was like, I, better bring that because if I'm just going to be a 500 backup and a lot of goalies were 500, they're, they're average or whatever, win loss, then what else am I going to bring? What makes me that I can get two or three years out of an organization instead of one? Because at that point, when you're 30 plus, there's always a young guy chasing you. So do they keep them down one more year or do they push the guy out? Well, a lot of I was lucky enough to keep those guys down one more year here, one more year there, because the team needed me at the NHL level. What was it like going to an expansion team? 
Like when you went to Minnesota there, it had to be a completely different experience than what you just had in St. Louis. I hired Max Offenberger. Do you know Maxie at all? The, the sports psychologist. Oh, yeah. yeah so Maxie that. worked with Grant Fear. So talk about going from a president's, team, a president's trophy winning team to a last place team, expansion team. So that summer, I, I called Maxie and I said, I, I want to hire you because I said, I think this is going to be a real mental challenge. That summer, they flew us into Minnesota. Jacques Lemaire was our coach, and he's unreal. I had him in New Jersey briefly. Yeah. So Manny Fernandez was the goalie partner. So Jacques takes us into this hotel room. He's like, that's my sister's kid. And I'm like, what? And he goes, my sister, that's his kid. Do you have a problem with that? And I'm like, no. Is it going to affect my starts? He's like, I don't care. He said, whoever's playing is going to play. And I go, all right, well, it doesn't affect me. And, and Manny and I ended up having a, a good friendship, but it didn't start out that way. Manny treated everything like a, a competition. And about two weeks in, I said to him, we're on an expansion team. I need you. You need me. Like instead of turning everything into like, like he wouldn't talk to me. I'm like, how are you doing today? Just look at me and turn away. I'm like, dude. What are you doing? Was he the first guy you ran into like that? Yeah. Was it a product of him coming from Dallas with Belfour maybe? I don't know. I think it was more he was just just trying to establish that he wanted to be a starter. And I respected it because I I thought Manny had real – he had skills. Like he had – he was a really good goalie. But I said to him and I kind of snapped on him in practice one day. I was like, what the fuck's your problem? Like, you know, he – Manny was really funny. He, from day one, he's like, we need a goalie coach. So they bring in this French goalie coach, Andre LeBron or something. I can't remember his name. Barely speaks English. Looks at me and is like, there's no way I can work with you. I'm a standout. Like, I'm just like. You were one of the last. Man. Yeah. Like, I, he's looking at me. He's like, ah, I, you know. And Manny, two days in, goes, get this guy away from me. I don't want to work with him. I'm like, you're the one who wanted the goalie coach. <laughs> so I'm, I'm with Andre. Andre looking at me going like, I, there's nothing I can do with you. You're a lost cause. And I, you know, I felt bad for the guy. Like literally he would stand there and like practice. He'd give out a bad rebound. He'd skate down and go, watch your rebounds. I'm like, thanks tips. Like, you know, like I knew, but he, he didn't know what to do because Manny had dusted him. So it was kind of funny because he was a very nice man. And I don't know his background. I think he was a teacher or something, but, um, Minnesota was really cool. We had a really good team as far as great guys. Gabby, Marion Gabrick was our 18-year-old stud. But, you know, we knew what we were. And I, I, I think we, that first year, couldn't have had a more successful year without embarrassing ourselves. You know, we, we lost a lot of games. I, I didn't realize this until our stats guy at TSN brought it up to me. I'm still... I think in the record book for least amount of goal support in a season. That was it. <laughs> so I played yeah. in 38 games that year. They scored 53 goals for me total. It's not going to win many. Manny played games. in 39, I think, and they he's they gave him like 108. <laughs> but Jock sat me down, and now I was making pretty good money. And he said, "You're the veteran, and you're making a lot of money." He goes, "You're going to get a lot of tough starts." And I said, that's fine. Uh, I respect that. So, you know, I got some starts. And, and Manny was a fantastic goalie. But there were nights where oh, we play at home against Anaheim, who wasn't very good. It was supposed to be my start. Manny, well, you're going to play in Colorado tomorrow against uh, Waugh, Bork, Blake, 
Forsberg, Sackic. all of the, Sackic, all those guys. And we'd hang in there, but uh, Jacques, was, he's still to this day one of the best coaches I've ever had. When you went down to the American League the following season, did you think that was it for the NHL with you? Yes and no. Um, I was making the most I'd ever made. Uh, Doug Risebrow, I mean, Dwayne Roll, they'd signed Dwayne Rollison half of what I was making, and they just, I think they were moving past me. It was fine. But I had a deal. My agent went and circumvented some stuff and tried to get me traded or take it on waivers. And it got to a point where, you know, they were pissed that my agent kind of went back door to a point where one organization was like, we'll tear your contract up. You make, I think I was making one four. And they're like, we'll give you three years at seven. And I was like, okay, I'll take it. And then Risebrow found out about it and he was pissed that we didn't approach him. And he like gave me shit one day. He's like, I'll fucking bury you. And I was like, well, I'm just trying to have a career here. But he was, he was right. We didn't do it the right way. But ultimately, I spent the whole year in Houston. Uh, no state tax in Texas, which was fine. Made a little bit extra money. No escrow. But you got to play with Derek Gustafson yes. high out of St. Lawrence University. Who now, I Gus, came, he the, left St. Lawrence, which created the opening for me to go there. Oh, really? So I, I wanted to make sure we gave okay, a nod well, to I got to get to that. So, But I went down. Todd McClellan was our coach. Right. I was 30. I think Todd was like 34. Todd was the best. He was amazing to me. He said, I don't know if you're going to be here two days, two weeks, or the whole season. Just give me what you can. And I said, I, I will give you. And we went to like the finals that year, I think, to against the Chicago Wolves. Great place to play, too. It was awesome. Legendary place to awesome. play. Awesome. We had great players there. Um, I was just sad playing in the minors. But I played well enough that to the point where Craig Button, who was running Calgary, um, there were teams that tried to trade for me during the season, but they wanted me to take such a pay cut. One team was like, we'll trade for you right now if you tear your contract up. I was at 1-4 and uh, play for 700. And I remember talking to my dad and my dad's like, you're never going to get that money back. And I was like, but I'm in the minors. Like, that's when I knew it wasn't about money. It was about pride and, and love of the game because I was quite miserable but down there. But I knew from a business standpoint, I, I, I've got to see this through. So, the next year I went, ended up in Calgary with Craig and, and we negotiated a deal even before he traded for me, but it, it ended up working out. It was, uh, and I got another five, six years out of it, but there were times, yeah, like where I gave up two back to back overtime goals in Houston where they were just dog shit goals <laughs> where I was like, what the hell was I doing? To the point where the second one, I went into Todd's office and I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I'm embarrassed because they were too awful back-to-back overtime goal, regular season. But still, like, you know, we lose 3-2 because I give up a muffin from the half wall, you know. And I see it coming and I don't, I don't know why I don't go down. I just let it go between my legs. Like, just stupid things like that. But uh, honestly, I... I my time in Houston actually helped me grow as a player. I became a little bit more mature because at 30, now I'm on the backside of it. So you either got to grow up and figure out what you are. Or and you we're can't. aware of it at that point. Exactly. Or you better be at least. Yeah. So Gus was my goalie partner. So Gus apparently was like, 
250 in college or something. Easily, yeah. He showed up and they tried to make him run and everything and he just couldn't do it. But then he started to play and he was unbelievable and they couldn't deny it. They had to put him he, in the net. He was unreal. And they signed, I think he got a $700,000 signing oh, he bonus. he got max, absolutely. Because he, he beat DPH row in like the frozen... Yeah, he made like NCAA. 80 saves or something in like a quadruple exactly. overtime. He had that one statement game that, yeah. as you know, for whatever reason, can yeah. get a guy a big deal out of college. And it got him. And he came to camp. I'll never forget this because Doug Risebrow, I may not have loved everything that he did, especially with me, but he had a comment in the paper. He goes, I think he this guy ate his signing bonus. Because <laughs> Gus showed up. He's 5'11", 240. He looked like a fire hydrant. Yeah. There. But he could play. He had good extremities and yeah. stuff. And then he lost a bunch of weight. And I don't think he could play after that. Isn't I think funny? he realized he wasn't comfortable in his body. I remember I remember Marty Brodeur saying in one summer he lost 15 or 20 pounds because they thought it would help. And he just felt awful. Yeah. You know, you, you play a certain way your whole life. And I know it's good for your health and it's good for maybe your longevity, but that drastic. I can see guys like, you know, James Neal, I found out, lost 20 pounds this summer as far as just lean lean muscle mass. He was already a strong guy, but he wanted to lighten up to get quicker. Well, we'll see. He's got eight goals so far. Good for him. Playing with McDavid, too. Yeah. Other things. He's help. being utilized on the power play exactly. really well. But, yeah. But, like, you know, that – I think with Gus, it was such a big extreme that it was like, I'm not – Maybe I think I'm sealing the post now. I'm not because you know the body's not there anymore. So it's kind of funny, but I did enjoy my time in Houston. And man, that that league was a good league. Like uh, the A was, is such a great league for developmental. But they're the hardest part is the six or seven veterans in that league. They're those guys are good. Like they're they can play in the NHL. Yeah. They're maybe missing a thin layer or something, but. We played Chicago in the finals, and it was Steve Maltese and Robbie Brown, and those guys would get like 200 points a year, and just a disaster. Like, they would just destroy teams. But uh, that that league, it really helped me, because I think I played 50-plus games. It actually got me back into a mindset of, like, enjoying and playing hockey and, and preparing myself to play every night, which... I hadn't done it in a while. It must have felt great, though, just on a personal level when you ended up in Calgary the next year. You know, a lot of if a guy goes to the American League at 30 years old, I mean, and today, and today it's it's done. over. You're not coming back, period. But at that time, I guess you could still do it, but it wasn't very common the at all. two th- guys I can remember, and both are having, well, Dwayne Rolison was one. Roley was done, and Minnesota signed him at 30, and he played till he was 42. The other guy is Curtis McElhinney. Yeah. No, C-Mac is... He's still holding strong at 36. He's gotten better as a goalie. So C-Mac and I came in in 2005 to training camp with the Omaha Sarban Knights. With, Both as rookies. With, well, Gilly would have been there. Oh, Gilly was there. <laughs> so Gilly was there. Gary, Gilly left quite an impression on me. But yeah, McElhaney and I were together. He was under contract with Calgary. Right. I was just on a PTO. But yeah, C-Mac is a guy who, to me, has had longevity. And he's, he's embraced the way he plays. He's exactly. embraced being a backup. He's And he's reinvented himself a couple times. He's yeah. had to go to the American League and back. And yeah. He's he's amazing to watch now what he does because he just keeps getting better. He's so diligent with how he approaches everything. He's yeah. always kept learning. That's the one thing, too. I, th- I thought I learned stuff at 31, 32 years old because I, got a, I had a goalie coach in Calgary named Dave Marcoux. And Dave was fantastic. Gully kept trying to get him to come down, but oh, really? I was a PTO guy, so that wasn't going to yeah. happen. <laughs> All right. That was awesome because Marcoux, he helped 
morphed me a little bit into a little bit of a hybrid. Like he was like, why don't you try this on the post? Why don't you try this? Because he's like, the game is now in closer. You got to do this. Go paddle down here. And and it actually, I I think it may have bought me a couple more years. Were you the last guy in the league using a flat blocker? Did you ever switch to a curve blocker? I did. Well, I had a, I had a, a blocker you'd work in and it would just have a slight bend. The you natural know what banana I mean? yeah, to the it. Yeah, the natural bend. I want to see. I mean, maybe I was. Would, would Nabokov? Did Nabokov have a bend in his block? He had a Reactor 5 Bauer that had a curve. Yeah. Pot, Potvin's probably the only other guy. And I think you lasted longer than Potvin. Yeah, I did. If you, I, mean, I did have a flat block. You might be the last guy. That's your claim to fame. <laughs> oh, my God. Where did, where did Russia come into the mix, though? So You had a layover there for a while, I right? did. So, okay, so I end up, you know, I, I go to Calgary, get traded to the Rangers, end up in Florida, back in Calgary. Um, my last NHL game, we were playing Detroit in the playoffs and Franzen and Holmstrom were just kicking the shit out of Kiprasov accidentally on purpose, falling on him, spearing him, all that. Like, you know, the, that team was, they never would fight, but they were sneakily dirty tough. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, so I, in my mind... I said, if I ever get in, I'm going to try and start a line brawl because our team will kick the shit out. Like, again, I would have been first in line to beat up you know, guys on their team. Like, and you had some penalty minutes yeah, through your career. But I, but I was more like, I'm, I'm just, you know, I knew I could be a sacrificial line. I'm, I'm going to try and start something here. So I'll never forget, it was game five. We're losing like 5 1, 5 2. They just scored. And we were going, they were going on the power play again. And Jimmy Playford was the coach. And he looked at me and he goes, get in there and mop this up. Like, just finish this off. The last five minutes, he throws me in. And Franzen is in front of me. And he's, he's screening me. And I chop him right away. And see, people don't realize he accidentally on purpose gave me the little, like, oh, I'm falling. And he whacked me one in the mask. The pitchfork is bailing hay, yeah. right? Didn't do anything. Didn't hurt me. But I was trying to goad him into attacking me. Because I was thinking, if he attacks me, we got a line brawl situation. And Aginla had already been chasing Matthew Schneider around the, then the ice. Um, Damon Lankow was trying to fight Brett Lebda. So, like, there, it was a gong show. Everyone, guys were losing their minds on the bench anyways. They wanted to fight. And so Jimmy, I was like, Jimmy Playfair is probably all in on this, too. I think know? so. But the yeah. thing is, is people think that he sent me in. I took this upon myself. And it was premeditated. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and start some shit. So I slash Franz in a couple times. He gives me the accidental on purpose. I'm, I look over. I'm getting a penalty. The puck goes around the net. And the whistle goes... And Franzen starts skating towards me. And I'm thinking, okay, here it comes. He's going to sucker me. And I short, short, like chop my stick. And I chop him on the right pant, like just higher up on the right pant. And he drops like I shot him. So I'm like, oh my God. Like, like if you, if I had a heart rate monitor on, my, my heart rate was 60. I was just like standing there like, what's going on here? Because... The optics of it couldn't have been worse. It was a Saturday afternoon game on NBC. Pierre Maguire's the analyst and that. Like, it is, Bettman's trying to sell the game in the States. And you get this idiot put in. And I just tried to start a fight. And I, w- I would have bet my life that Franzen was going to sucker me. And I was going to chop him. And we were just going to go at it. 
And I chopped him and he just dropped. And I was like, he's not hurt because I know I hit him like it, it, kind of on the hip area, the pant area. Like people thought I chopped him in the face. Like it looked so quickly, it looked awful. They escort me out. I get kicked out. I get five, ten, a game and all that. And I'm sitting in the dressing room and I'm like, that didn't go the way I planned at all. Like <laughs> I was in the game for 18 seconds. Kipper had to come back in. It was just a disaster. And we that was a Saturday afternoon game in Detroit. We played Sunday night in Calgary. It was back to back. I don't know why back then. And so we get off the plane and Daryl Sutter calls me and he goes, you're probably going to have a hearing, like be in my office at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I, I didn't know. I didn't sleep that well that night. I got off the plane. I was dating a girl and her, like, I remember getting to her, like, her brother's house. And they're all just staring at me like, what did you do today? Like, it's <laughs> it's everywhere. It was like leading sports center. It was everywhere. And I was like, I it, it looks worse than it was. But there was no defending it. So the next morning, I'm on the conference call with the league, and Daryl Sutter goes nuts. He goes like, that's a two-minute slash. He goes, if that was Brad Stewart, that's a love tap, maybe two minutes. Or and, and he goes, I don't even know why we're on this call. You're wasting my time. So And we were playing that night. So I go down to the dressing room. I skate, <coughs> work out, and Rich Preston comes in, and he goes, you got five games. And like a fine, there was like a hundred thousand dollar fine. Like there, it was a gong show. Jimmy Playfair got fined for 20, 25 grand. I was like, oh my god. And I think I can't confirm this, but Aginla should have gotten something because apparently he butt ended uh, Schneider pretty good. And I think uh, Lankel may have gotten something for the Lev Day thing. But I was the easy target, too. I was the idiot who just laid it on a tee for everyone. So I accepted it. We miraculously, here's the best part. <laughs> Johan Franzen scores the game-winning goal the next night in overtime against us. He's so, okay. He, he, like, he just, you back know. Back from the dead. Yeah, back from the dead. Like, rose from the dead. And I never, I sent over, a, I, I know Chris Osgood quite well. And all those guys, and Draper and all those guys. Like it was out of character for me. But I remember sending over a message with the trainer after the game. Like, sorry. Like, please tell Johan, like, that wasn't my intent to try and injure him. All of that. I never had an opportunity until years later. I, I, when I was doing color, I was doing a Detroit game, and Johan Franzen was there. And he was riding the bike, and I locked eyes with him, and I Hey, how are you? And he was kind of a little bit. And I said, you know, I'm Jamie McLennan. I said, I, you know, I never got an opportunity to apologize to you. I said, just so you know, like I, I, I kind of laid out, like I, I, I tried to start shit. I thought you were going to beat me up. Like I, I told him basically what I told you. And he kind of laughed. Like apparently he's a really funny guy and a good guy, very loved. And we had a good laugh about it. I go, I never hurt you. He goes, no, you surprised me. Which was cold for like, yeah, like I went down and I sold it. But like, he goes, you surprised me and I just dropped. And I was like, yeah, I get it, you know. And and then I saw him a game, another game. And he, he asked me, he's like, um, he goes, I, I got a follow-up question. He goes, why did you do it? And I said, I just wanted to start trouble. Like I was trying to, and he laughed again. But like, I felt like at least I got a chance to like tell him sorry. Like it wasn't something that I... 
you know, did. But that's that's how I ended my career. So then that summer, Calgary wasn't going to sign me again. And my agent, Pat Morris, called around. There were some teams that were offering, but we had to – one of the offers was like 475 one way. That was NHL minimum yeah. or whatever. If you weighed out the escrow living in the state of New York, because I think it was Buffalo that was interested or something, and – uh, the suspension of that, like my take home, I wasn't going to make a lot of money that year. So, so you didn't have to pay the suspension though. I never had to pay. I, I gave one, I gave my one game. I had to give my playoff check. And you're still permanently banned. Four games. I owe the league. (laughs) And you're basically Ogie Oglethorpe. It it is. I'm suspended from the league. So then Pat called me and said, Magnitogorsk is interested in Russia. I Googled it immediately and found out it was the fifth most polluted city on the planet. And, but the money was can't turn it down, right? It was cash money, like six thousand a win or four thousand a win. So massive salary, uh, all cash plus win bonus, shutout bonus, two weeks off, uh, five first class flights. It was a ridiculous contract. But I was like, I got to go live in Russia, which you know I was told basically treat it like you're going to go to jail for six months. How long did you last? Six weeks. Pretty good run. Did you you have to tape the cash to your body during practice? No. They were... A lot of the misnomer... I called Freddie Brathwaite right away. And I said, Freddie had been over there for four years. And he made like a a joke. He said, Jamie, like, if I can survive... He goes, Jamie, you know... He goes, I'm a different race. And he goes, I'm a short, fat, black guy. You know, he said something like that. And honestly... He, he loved Russia and he built it up for me. So I, I, you know, the way I looked at it is I was going to try it out, you know, and I went and I got there and he, I, I, they had wired some off, offshore money to, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We might have to edit this one. Something fun around. Yeah. But, but to make sure that I told him, I said, I'm not stepping foot in Russia until I at least feel like I can get paid because that was the biggest misnomer. I don't know if you've heard the the stories that guys just don't get paid oh, all the time. or they have to tape their, you know. Goalies putting it in, opening in the up pads. their goalie pads, putting it in the pads, taping it to your body during practice so people yeah. wouldn't take it in the room. Right. Who knows how much all this was true, but this is what you'd hear. And that's what, like, but Freddie was, he, he said, it's not as bad as you think, but he goes... It's Russia. He goes, it's the Wild West. That's what he kept saying. And uh, my first ever experience. So I'm 36 years old and I get over there and I I meet the team in, in Germany. They're training six hours a day, three times a day on the ice, plus dry land. I'm like, it's middle of July or end of July 21st. I, I'm like, I'm too old for this. Like, I'm, I'm not going to survive. And then these guys would drink and smoke all night and then do it again. <laughs> Four days of that. And then we flew to Russia. I was dying. And we land. And it was a gong show. Like, I've never seen anything like it. I'm leaving the Sheremetyev airport. And there's just cars everywhere. Guys on the bus smoking. And I get there. I get on the bus. And I'm sitting there, guys are drinking and smoking, playing cards. And our bus driver can't leave because there's just cars blocking him. 
all of a sudden he starts yelling at this guy. The guy gets out of the car with a gun and he's got a Glock and he's got it right to the bus driver's face. And I'm screaming, gun, gun, there's a gun. And guys are looking at me like, what are you, what are you worried about? And I'll never forget Nikolai Kuleman was sitting in front of me and he was on the phone with his girlfriend and he was shushing me. And I was like, are you not seeing this? This guy's got his gun. <laughs> and the, the bus driver's pushing the gun out of the way to talk to the guy and yell at him. And then the guy got in his car and drove the, moved the car. That was my first experience ever on Russian soil. I've been there two hours. There's a gun, Our bus driver's got a gun in his face. Unbelievable. It's crazy. Well, it must have been a little better in Japan, I'd imagine, when you went there. I Was went, that a really cool experience? Amazing. Because you went with Tyson Nash, right? Yes. And my best friend who has Japanese descent in there, he called me when I left Russia and he said, uh, why don't you come retire with me? He goes, this is my last year. He goes, I want to, he goes, come over and we'll retire together. You had a proper send off, like a proper farewell tour. Almost. It was amazing. I, I thought I was going to, when I was done with Russia and Russia was done with me, I, I wanted to get out of there and I'm glad I went, but I'm glad I went home. And then, my buddy called me from Japan and he said, why don't you come over? They'll take care of you financially. It was like a paid vacation. I love the hockey. The hockey was like East Coast League level, the top two lines. Um, the cities were amazing. Like where in your life are you going to get paid to go live in Japan? There's two teams in Korea and one in China. I, I got to visit these amazing places. Yeah, and my friends that have played over there too, I have a friend named Mike Medill that played. And he just talks about though the whole culture, just how cool it was and how inviting everyone. And yeah. it was just so, such a great life experience. I I went over and Nasher came with me. We would drink this Yakiniku. The, or no, we would eat at the Yakiniku and drink shochu. And it was like such an amazing experience. And the people there were so kind. The hockey was a little unique because... You would skate around, and then before the game, you would bow to the fans, and there was a lot of respect being thrown around. Martin Korea said it was like having 20 Ichiros on the ice. They yeah. could all fly, but none of them could really handle the puck. Exactly. Like, the the chaos out there, the systematic play, but they could they could skate, they could shoot. They, it, just putting it all together was a bit of a <laughs> yeah. disaster, but I, I loved it. And again, I got a chance to go. We went to China one time. And the gold judge was smoking. He had an ashtray on the boards, and he had a. I look. I was like, this guy's hacking a dart behind the bench. This like, is like Toledo in '85. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it though. But it was it was really neat to go. And I knew I was done when I when I finished. Um, the day I flew back, I started with the Calgary Flames. Daryl Daryl Sutter called me and said, "I want you to be in player development and and scouting and a little bit of everything. I'm going to show you the ropes and." He was amazing. And then, you know, I became the goalie coach for a couple of years. And then uh, when they didn't renew my contract and offered me to go back into player development, that's when I got an email from TSN saying, would you like to try it out? And this is my ninth year with TSN. It's, it's amazing. crazy. So I, I had a similar experience ending where I knew it was the end for me. Yeah. And it was the best because it felt like that chapter closed. And yeah. it's the same way with you, I'm guessing. You don't really have that feeling of what it was or what could have been further at all at that yeah. point. Yeah. No, I... I joke, as I said, I threw my pads in the river. Like, I don't play at all. Like, at least you you, you told me you practice and stuff. I don't. Uh, I put my pads on um, five years ago. We, as St. Louis Blues alumni, went over to Slovakia for the Pavel Dimitra um, Memorial Games and all of that. 
And that kind of got duped by them because they were like, yeah, Fierzy's coming. You'll play half the games. Fierzy bailed. So I was the only goalie. So I played three games in four nights. And I don't know if anybody took a sober breath over there. <laughs> and we're playing against Chara and Gabrick and Hosa and all of these players flying around Bondra. But it was really fun. Yeah. I loved it over there. And having that experience, too, it touched all of us. We were talking well, off air before about locomotive, how if you're yeah. in hockey in the last 25, 30 years, that affected us all directly it, in it some did. way. It did. I had six teammates or people that I knew very well on that flight, including Brad McCrimmon, who was my coach in Calgary, who ironically had sent a message back the night before through Rob Cookson, who you know, Cookie. Machine Gun Cookson. Yeah, so yeah. Cookie had called me and said, hey, Beast, uh, told me to pass a message along to you about Russia. You were bang on about everything, which kind of made it, I'm happy, but it makes me sad too, because I remember telling uh, Brad that, you know, the pay is good, uh, the people are amazing, the cities are great, but like, um, you know, I didn't love the planes. There was a we had a we had an issue with a plane one time where the, something was hanging off the wing, and you know, I just I felt like that was a. I remember not warning him because he can't you, you can't predict this stuff like that's not. But I remember saying that everything in Russia, like you know, it was amazing. But I I just I I, I told him kind of the lay of the land, and and apparently you know Beast was like yeah tell noodles he was bang on about you know like the. <laughs> The, the culture, the food, everything. And, and then, you know, I woke up to a message the next day that locomotive had crashed. And so sad. I mean, you know, it just, it, I mean, you you and I have traveled, you know, 20 years of our lives flying around and buses, buses and planes. And, you know, I mean, my good friend, Chris Joseph and Andrea, their son, Jackson, was killed in the Humboldt uh, tragedy. Like, you know, th these things touch touch you like hockey's a small community they touch you in different ways like uh they bring you together uh i'll never forget locomotive and obviously i i only have a small layer of of closeness to the humboldt tragedy other than the fact that it's part of the hockey community right and obviously andrea and chris who you know i grew up with them and and their son jackson i met as a as a child you know and and he'd grown into such a an amazing boy but uh um you know these these tragedies. I, I you never you hope it never happens again. Let's put it that way. But the the part of that though, on the flip side, is just how close we are. Like you mentioned, you yeah. Know, and, and this, you can go anywhere in hockey, and we've played with somebody that knows somebody everywhere. Well, and like even us getting together, you well, know. Yeah, I mean, you and I. It's funny yeah. when I say the the name of your podcast is Bang On because we we literally. I think both of our careers mirrored each other a lot more than others, right? So we were well-traveled. So you played with so many teammates. And, you know, we could throw out a name, and I guarantee you, if you didn't know that guy, you knew somebody who played with him or know a story about him. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's just that's the nature of it. It's just I'm 12 years older than you. So when I'm talking about Frank by Lois, Frank the Animal by Lois, <laughs> uh, you didn't, you know, you don't know that one. But, uh you know, it, it's it's it it is it's pretty cool that the game gave us a lot, and I'm I'm appreciative for it. But I, you know, that's why I still track it, and that's why I still love it, and why I'm in the media is I love talking hockey every day. It's the best part, man. It is. I can't tell you thanks enough because this was so much fun. It was good. I I feel like I went long because I ramble lots, but. Uh... 
it's it's good. You know, I think we needed to to air out some of the good stuff. I mean, I feel like we could have a follow up one once we're uh, or ten. Yeah, or ten. <laughs> yeah, do a ten hour special. But, uh... Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.